0: Stick around after the show for an interview with Clay Baldo, the host of Strangers in China, the newest podcast at SupChina, which will debut September 19th. Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website subchina.com. We offer original reporting and perspectives on a range of China-related topics, from the Belt and Road to the environment, from the latest online phenomena to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gual, coming to you today from Denver, Colorado, where the 2019 AAS Conference, the Association for Asian Studies Conference, is uh, throwing its annual shindig. It's been a terrific, terrific conference, and as you can imagine, we've managed now to line up many, many guests for future episodes, so stay tuned. Today on Seneca, I am delighted to be joined by Ed Pulford, a postdoctoral researcher at Hokkaido University, uh, who I actually met last year at AAS, of all things. Uh, Ed is the author of a brand new book called Mirrorlands, Russia, China, and Journeys in Between. Ed is a Cambridge-trained linguist and anthropologist who is fluent in both Russian and Mandarin Chinese, and we've just been talking about, just now, about learning Japanese and Korean. Uh, He's at Hokkaido, so naturally Japanese. His book is a kind of... I would describe it as an erudite anthropological travelogue that focuses on the, the paired cities and towns facing each other across the long sino russian border. Uh, it's full of lots of adventures and well-made observations with plenty of wit and humor and all without a, a bit of mean-spiritedness, which is really impressive. Uh, Ed Pulford, welcome to Seneca. Thank you very much, Kaiser. It's great to be here. Uh, so, Ed, what, what inspired you to write a book of this nature? I mean, it's, it's not an academic book, obviously. Um, it's, it's not a mere travelogue, that's for sure. People might think of Paul Thoreau, maybe, uh, that, that sort of thing, a kind of mm. smart uh, travelogue, but I don't like Paul Thoreau. He's <laughs> not an attractive character. I me. he doesn't come out And where, you know, you're much more sympathetic. The places you go, really are are out of the way, uh very much off the beaten path there is not much by way of inspiring natural vistas or magnificent architecture. Right. But and there were no calamitous wars or or uh you know massive political repression, no big flows of refugees, uh no illegal immigration, no drug smuggling. I mean there's not a lot of anything going on. Uh, in fact the the people you write about are Ordinary, uh, kind of quirky, maybe, but quotidian, right?
1: I wouldn't say there's no illegal migration or drug smuggling, but uh, yeah, okay. I mean, not uh, not things that I personally wanted to get too involved in in either Russia or China. Um, but in terms of inspiration, um, I spent many years living in both countries. I studied Russian as an undergrad uh, in the UK. And during that time also got very interested in China and so spent a year abroad that I had uh, during the third year of my bachelor's in Vladivostok uh, in the Russian Far East and studied Chinese there at a local university in order to try to understand this connection. And I suppose in some ways everything I've done since then has been an effort to make sense of that probably somewhat bizarre decision uh, made, you know, in the fit of extremes that uh, <laughs> early 20s uh, British boy you may have. Um, But in any case, uh, after graduating, I then decided to get into this China thing a bit more seriously. I lived for a couple of years in Wuhan immediately after graduating, then for a year in Xinjiang, and then returned to the UK again after that and started uh, postgraduate studies. But I suppose I always had this in mind that I wanted to sort of encapsulate some of these experiences living in the two countries. The relationship between the two was always something that interested me. And in a sense, I guess, although the PhD, of course, was my main occupation for a while, uh, I wanted to do something that explained in a way that people for example my mum would understand about what I've been up to for the last sort of 10 or so <laughs> years um, I'd spent a bit more time in China during my doctoral studies and uh, I guess yeah mainly I was wanting to put a kind of uh, cap on this decade of wandering around these places which as you say are somewhat unknown to people and probably for good reason because they're not necessarily immediately uh, popular tourist sites uh, if you like. So the book draws on a lot of your your past experiences there, but it, it's
0: written in a sort of present tense of a, a, a trip you actually took from Moscow to Beijing and, and with lots of meanderings along the border in between. Can you sketch out the journey uh, and try to give our listeners a sense of how much distance you covered some of the weird places? And we'll we'll talk about a lot of
1: the places you stopped and wrote mm-hmm. about uh, how you did it and how long it took. Yeah, so that's right. I, I guess I wanted to have a vehicle for drawing together some of the broader deductions that I've made over time and sort of my own, uh, however, inadequate understanding uh, that I, whatever I'd reached uh, of both places. But uh, yeah, a journey zigzagging uh, across the border seemed like a a good way of doing that. So I made that a couple of years ago, three years ago. I I set off from Moscow. Uh, Basically, I thought, uh, yeah, the Moscow-Beijing thing uh, would be a good way of uh, drawing together not only the immediate borderland relationship, but also putting that into dialogue with the broader Russia-China as as larger entities kind of dynamic. And so I made plans to, to get to Moscow. I then, rather than doing, I guess, what is still not a wildly popular route, but one that people do a little more, the Trans-Siberian, which you can do if you so choose it right. directly from Moscow to Beijing or the other way around in a week without getting off. I did want to do it from Vladivostok to Moscow uh, without stopping. But uh, yeah, I decided I wanted to do a, a route that took in more diversity of both places. And so, I initially flew to the kind of edge of this area that blurs between what we call Siberia and what is actually officially called the Russian Far East. Now, even people from central part of Russia from Moscow or St. Petersburg Well, the far western part of Russia don't really readily distinguish between Siberia and and the Far East. It's over Um, the Urals, though. That's correct. Well, everything beyond the Urals is either Siberia or the Far East. east, So, from the Urals to a kind of ill-defined area, quite a long way, several thousand miles east of there is Siberia, and then the Far, the Russian Far East is the area that I guess includes the sort of eastern seaboard, if you like, the running all the way from Chukotka, which is the bit next to Alaska. All the way down to where Vladivostok is uh, in Maritime Province Primorsky Krai. It's called, um, which is right next to North Korea, the, yeah. North Korea and China, and, and, and the sort of triple border area. Which incidentally is what I wrote my PhD about. Right.
0: You were based in Kuchin, which is this Chinese city that's uh, at the
1: triple border, basically. That's right. Yeah. That was that was my PhD subject. But we'll, in, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How long did the whole thing take you then? I spent a couple of months on the road, I guess. Which, given the distance involved, I mean, the border alone is four and a half thousand kilometers. Well, Yeah, I mean, that's the border if you just do it directly. And I was, you know, somewhat meandering. So actually even a couple of months over that distance, you need to be moving with relative speed. But- I lost count of the number of
0: times you actually crossed the border. Was, I mean, you, you actually threaded back and forth uh, in in, in many- It must have looked very suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I did wonder each time. I mean, that's something I try to reflect on a bit in, in the book regarding uh, what on earth people thought I was doing because um, there are there are border crossings between the two countries where third, third country citizens, so people not from Russia or China are not permitted to cross. Uh, so I was made sure to choose places where I would be officially allowed but even places where you're officially allowed it doesn't mean you're expected by any means Um, but yeah I started in Russia as I say came down from this sort of westernmost part of the far east or the part where Siberia meets the Russian far east came down crossed into China moved east from there back into Russia again continue to move east, and then back into China again. So I guess uh, in total, three border crossings, Russia-China, China-Russia, and then back into Russia-China again uh, to make it to Beijing ultimately. Uh, The book is filled
0: with all sorts of amusing characters. I mean, these are Russians in the Far East, uh, members of many different ethnic groups that I think lots of folks listening probably haven't even heard of. They were real hard-drinking types on both sides of the borders. (laughs) Um, Let's be honest here. Um, You know, there had to be pretty strong temptation to get in a laugh at their expense but as i said i think you
1: you managed to refrain from doing that and you're pretty good about you know not being a jerk well i mean it's yeah i guess it's a, a, a something i strive to uh, to uh, adhere to non-jerkish behavior uh, in most of my activities um but yeah i guess uh, in terms of the humor humorous side it was I, I'm, I'm pleased you sort of uh, read it that way because uh, it was certainly my intention to draw out some of the undoubted uh, humor which I think really uh, pervades and washes over. It's one of the many things that uh, I guess unifies the far- furthest eastern parts of Russia and the Chinese northeast. The kind of wit and the sly sarcasm. I mean, not not always something that I think is readily associated with what might broadly be uh, understood to be Chinese humor, but actually, you know, the, 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 the Dongbei character I think has some things in, in common with... Uh, Dongbei is with- the repository really of all Chinese humor. I mean, Tianjin, Dongbei and
0: to some extent Beijing but,
1: right yeah. and 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 so as a result i don't think i felt like i needed to Generate humor out of my own mind because there's an awful lot that uh, in a, in a relatively anthropological way you can draw directly from the source. part of this may well be coming from a British background where a certain form of sardonic cynical humor is is the norm, maybe uh even uh tediously so for uh some many outsiders and indeed some insiders uh but I think i think as a result the kind of yeah readiness with which people uh make. Dark allusions to things in order to joke, both in Russia and, and, as I say, in Northeast China, means that there's there's plentiful material there. You don't need to invent things uh, from your own uh, back. I mean, to keep you honest, you you make all these quirky little
0: historical sallies and discussions of other travelers who had had done the same route in one direction or the other. Uh, One of them has this sort of fabulously Dickensian name that just evokes exactly what her personality was like. uh, Ethel Alec
1: Tweedy. That's right, yeah. Um, a, an aristocratic British uh, traveller during the, during the 1920s. It's just kind of a reminder throughout just how not to write about your,
0: your travels maybe.
1: Yeah, I think I was conflicted. The main sources, as you mentioned, that I use uh, as, as a kind of window onto the past because the book, it's carried forward by my journey in the present, but it seeks to provide a window into what the region and, and, and what the dynamic between the two countries has been in decades and indeed centuries past. And so I found quite a useful, uh, window onto that were these historical travel logs written by figures like Chu Chau Bai, who's quite well known. Um, Chu yeah, Chau Bai, I mean, maybe we can ID him very
0: quickly. He, he sure. was. A communi- an early communist luminary and, and uh, one of the literati intellectuals mm-hmm. later had a falling out with the party. Um, right.
1: And, well, and actually at this stage when he was making this journey in 1920-21, uh, he was not in fact uh, yet, yet, I no guess, fully convinced yeah. of, of, of communism as the, as the particular ideology. Um, but then from the other side, there are a couple of Russian uh, leftist revolutionaries as well, traveling to Japan and China, who again made similar journeys, one of whom is uh, Sergei Tretokov, who's right. a, you know, extremely wry observer of a lot of what was going on. And I think, again, I mean, that the humor in both what Chuchobai writes and and Tretakov and the mix of that with this kind of giddy idealism of what was going on a century ago in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution seemed a really good window into what has united the two countries for the last hundred years in particular. But Ethel Alec Tweedy, Ethel Brilliana Alec Tweedy, indeed, uh, <laughs> I think I I didn't want to be uncharitable to her because in many regards as a female traveler, uh, you know, of whatever social class in the 1920s, this was a pretty extraordinary thing to be doing. I mean, her book, which documents that journey, again, in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution... Russia racked by civil war she's absolutely disgusted by more or less everything she sees along the way but in any case I didn't want to uh, be too uncharitable to someone who uh, regardless of of the tone in which she writes is a pretty intrepid figure but in 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 any case I think it's it was difficult to resist at least not being not not counterposing her rather a negative take on everything, you know, the, the, the kind of global bourgeoisie being threatened by these these Russian and Chinese leftists with that idealism that I mentioned on the part of Russian and Chinese people themselves doing that journey at the same time. Speaking of idealists, you also have this really sort of painfully earnest a proselytizer of
0: Esperanto, a Chinese uh, scholar who...
1: Mm. I can't remember his name now. Hu Yu
0: Yeah, Hu Yu yeah, yeah. mm. Tell us a little bit about him.
1: Yeah, so he, uh, he'd spent a period of time in Europe. So actually, in terms of trajectories, I'm going west to east, Moscow to Beijing. But the journeys that the others are taking, some uh, some of them are in the other direction. So Chu Chobai, Bai, for example, is coming back or coming to Moscow from China at the time. He was going to work as a, a newspaper reporter for this Beijing-based newspaper. Or Shanghai-based newspaper Tumbal in Moscow, but Hu Jintao had spent a period of time in Europe immediately preceding his Trans-Siberian trip, and so he is travelling back across. Uh, spends a period of time in uh, in Moscow. And then gets on the train to return to China. And yeah, he was a, he was a, a, an interesting figure as well, a kind of a leftist, but not necessarily someone who was immediately caught up with the kind of mainstream, I guess, at that point of, of Chinese communist thoughts. He was mid thirties, we're talking, so somewhat later than, uh, a decade or, or a little more later than Chu Chou Bai. but yeah, he was a, an Esperantist, a, a kind of someone like a lot of these figures, and this is what I t- want to try to bring out, who was just incredibly inspired by the Bolshevik revolution and by some. Something that seemed to be offering a completely new vision of how you might run an enormous land empire, which uh, you know both Russia and China are and have been for a very long time. So
0: we we obviously can't talk about every town he visited along the way. Uh, let's just pick out a few places to focus on. One that I wanted to talk about first is the town of Nerchinsk. Uh, students of late imperial China. Uh, will know that name because of the treaty that mm. was signed between Tsarist Russia and the Qing Dynasty mm. uh, in, what was that, 1689? Yep. yeah. Uh, talk about what led up to that, though, because there's a lot of of, of history that I think most people sort of glance over. Uh, the, the the town of Albazin, which was founded by, you know, like renegade Cossacks. Mm, and then, mm. That's very, very right. interesting, like, what happened. And, and give us a sense of the historical forces that collided there. It reminds me of... The expanding um, the empire of Islam and, and the Tang Empire and meeting at the Battle of Talas. In, mm-hmm. in, in, in
1: yeah, I think. I mean, I think seven forty-two. Yes, this is a uh, a particularly sort of uh, emblematic. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a site which, as you say, a lot of people have heard of in kind of vague terms. And as you mentioned, there have been periods in the past where big land uh, sort of empires have collided uh, somewhere. And you know, in a sense, I think one of the most interesting aspects of the Russia-China relationship. Both on the macro level and on the ground, is that these these two things are still there, right? this 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 collision that occurred, as as you say, uh, in uh, well the 1680s was the was the the kind of where it came to a head, uh, and and the Qing were successful in booting out the Russians from part of land that they'd kind of come into but from then until now you know those two those two pol- polities uh, in in varied forms have existed right up to the present and so yeah so the the kind of i tried to trace some of this the the precursors to this nyershinsk treaty and, and and kind of what led up to that um, by starting in yakutsk in fact which was the kind of main stockade from which uh, the final push that that russian cossacks and and their sponsors back in moscow made to the furthest eastern part to the eastern seaboard, as I say, of Russia, Sea of Ahotsk and and, and this region. And so preceding their sort of incursion into what was at the time, this is the mid to late uh, 17th century, this was the kind of edge, the fringes of Qing territorial awareness. I mean, of course, we're talking about a period when the Qing had only been established for a few decades uh, following 1644. But the kind of growing presence of Tsarist forces or, or, or Cossacks who for a long time but often operate in, as in many colonial endeavours think of the East India Company or, or other such comparisons were operating kind of as as, as private independent, ind- independent actors pillaging and, and grabbing as much as they could and then presenting that as a uh, fait accompli to the centre and saying look you know, kind of like a, I don't know, like a cat dragging a sparrow into the house and presenting it to its owner, you know, like, look what I've found, or, look what I've done. Well, uh, you know, can you I... D- at Francis Drake, I mean... Right, it's no, so uh, the, the, the British uh, were equally uh, haphazard and exploitative in their time, but yeah, the Cossacks had expanded into these regions. They'd started extracting tribute in furs. And this is, again, one of many parallels that the Russian and Chinese empires before this era of socialism that that we just briefly touched on, one of many parallels that they had, both fur-extracting and, and tribute-extracting empires, of course, in slightly different ways. But they'd moved into the region and started levying fur taxes from local indigenous populations, who at the time, at least in some numbers, were directing their tributary uh, flows towards Beijing, the new Qing government, who, of course, had quite a uh, strong connection to this region, having come themselves from from down from Manchuria. And so this obviously, as the Qing became increasingly aware of what was going on, cheesed them off quite significantly. And so they decided to move in and put a stop to this. And yeah, the, the practice of, of Russian colonial expansion at that time was, again, to parallel other countries which have expanded across continents. These wooden stockades, you know, just as in the American West, these kind of fortresses that, that were small. I mean, the number of people involved in many of these uh, iconic historical events. we actually pretty right. small, yeah. yeah. So a few, few hundred people had like, yeah, put, put together this stockade at Albazin, which I guess was considered to be, yeah, really beyond the pale in terms of what, uh, the Qing were prepared to accept. And so they were successful at that time in, in, in booting the, uh, the Cossacks out and, and, and getting rid of them for a time anyway. How aware were they of one another? We have this. You know, with the sort of advent of, of
0: powerful gunpowder armies in the aftermath of Tamerlane, in its beginning, really, in the 16th century, you already start to see the sort of expansive Russian power. And in the 17th century, of course, it becomes, you know, a major feature, the sort of manifest destiny. Hmm. Uh,
1: but how
0: aware was Tsarist Russia about the Qing and how aware were the Qing of, of, of these um, hairies coming from the yeah
1: coast. right the yeah the 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 milds uh, uh, the, the hairies from the from the north Um no I think there was a great degree of mutual of mutual ignorance at this point uh, I think the the Qing themselves didn't fully know who these maniacs were on their northern fringes. And for the Russians' part, it seems pretty clear that they didn't have much of a clue either that these Qing forces who were fighting them and and raising their stockades in the build-up to the settlement at uh were the same people who were ruling this China thing that they'd heard about uh, in reports from historical travellers. Of course, you know, Moscow was... They called it Chitai though, right? I mean, after... The Kitans, right? The tzida, right, the, yeah, this 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 word that's Cathay in yeah, English. In English uh, yeah. The same, yeah, it's cognate with... Uh, so they had this, yeah, this word Kitai. They'd heard of it as part of the European information flows that at the time were revealing secrets of the Orient to European elites, certainly. And it took them a while to match up the fact that this China thing was the same, or at least those these people that they were fighting uh, as they moved east were the same people as they'd heard about in the reports from travellers now of course there were europeans missionaries and other jesuits and so on at the beijing court already at this point quite early on in um, fact they were
0: the negotiations the negotiations at the were in latin right Right,
1: in part yeah i mean uh, partly as a result of both having had their exploitative way with with tribute levying in oh well, maybe not exploitation i guess there are there are uh, disputes or debates to be had over the morality of of that form of uh, of, of of colonial co-optation but um Both the Russians and the Qing had their own Mongolian-speaking allies as a result of expanding into this area. And so uh, negotiations, and, and again, this plays into the kind of mutual ignorance picture because neither of them spoke the other's language. Russians didn't speak Manchu or Chinese, and the Qing, the Manchu forces didn't speak Russian. And so, yeah, Mongolian intermediaries were part of the picture, but also Russia, being an empire that had also expanded west at this point, had various Polish, Catholic, or Latinate figures at court. As well, and, and some of whom came along to the Nierchinsk Treaty negotiations and were able to talk to these missionaries at the Qing court in Latin, which by the to, to have late seventeenth century is a last grand cameo for Latin, um, <laughs> which was still playing a role, of course, in Neo Latin speaking and using communities in parts of Europe and indeed even even to an extent in, in South America at this time. But you know, I think to see it there on the step uh, is quite a no, uh, yeah, quite a tableau. I imagine. Yeah. I would love to see. A sort of filmic recreation of this. Uh, no classical Roman would ever have expected that. <laughs> no, indeed.
0: T- talk about what the town of Nierzynski is like now, though.
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh, a it's, sorry place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, like like a lot of places. To be honest, it's by no means the uh, by no means the worst kind of place in, the, in those parts. But uh, it um, really, uh, it's fair to say that that 1689 flurry was one of its main historical points of prominence, which subsequently it hasn't, uh, arguably hasn't matched. It was kind of a frontier town for the many of the ensuing decades it then really started to go into catastrophic relative decline because the trans-siberian bypassed it when that was built uh, early in the 20th century it's not that far away but basically if you were going to be a successful town then, or a successful population center then you wanted to be on this new rail route that was being constructed there at the in the very sort of dying days of the of the czarist period and having been bypassed that it was kind of a a backwater and, and remained such until the present with a modest sort of tin mining industry and and so on which was propped up for a while under soviet subsidy and has since uh, itself kind of collapsed and, and and so yeah it's a pretty um i mean these places are very sort of somnolent uh places it's fair to say kind of uh not not as depressing as some others i would say uh because of one for one thing the landscape around this part of i guess the far southeastern corner of siberia you might call it uh, is absolutely st- stunningly beautiful these kind of rolling pea green hills the kind of uh that you've seen from, you know, I guess, p- pictures of Mongolia, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, similar kind of a landscape. So, um, but yeah, definitely not a um, a major fulcrum of, of anything much these days. Another town he visited was Chita. Mm. Um, the
0: Chita. Uh, right, right. Uh, and that was at one point the capital of a short-lived Far Eastern Republic. Is that correct?
1: That's right, yeah. So actually this coincided with exactly the time that Chu was passing through the area and during the aftermath of the civil war that followed the Bolshevik revolution in October 1917 uh, the Bolsheviks basically fought their way further and further east it took them 5 years to get from St Petersburg where it had all started to Vladivostok so there was an under- of course 1917 is the iconic date that marks that revolution but actually the Soviet Union itself wasn't established properly until 1922 once they'd actually finally re Conquered all of what was Tsarist territory before that, and in that kind of intermediary period from twenty to twenty-two, there was this Far Eastern Republic, which was set up as a buffer state, basically to uh, cushion Russian or, or new uh, Red Russian interests against Japanese imperial interests in the Asian mainland. Which, as uh, anyone familiar with that period of history in in this region, will be will be familiar with. Was it was a growing growing force, and and so for a period there was this yeah you know, this Far Eastern Republic produced its own stamps and had its own trappings of statehood and for that there game. there was
0: even an embassy from China from who, who warlord was in power duan zhi or wu or whoever was in power in beijing had dispatched an uh, an ambassador and he actually met with chu chu bai right,
1: right so chu chu bai did a was was chu bai was basically cu- held up on his way west uh, repeatedly because i think i i, I remember learning uh in history lessons in a uh, Russian undergrad class uh, that uh, the Russian empire or the former Russian empire by the end of the civil war had something like seven functioning locomotives, uh, whether or not that's entirely true. I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, my teacher was, uh, was, was keen to stress that as a sign of the sort of decrepitude and the ravages of the civil war. But as you'd imagine, anyway, the infrastructure was in, was in pretty parlous state. So Chu repeatedly had to stop for quite significant periods on his way west. And in Chita, he, uh, had a chance to meet various local functionaries, some of the Far Eastern Republic government, and also this this emissary of the Republic of China, who he found a pretty frustrating figure. Uh, he seemed completely uh, clueless about anything yeah. that was going on in China, perhaps understandably, given that what was going on in China was really not, not entirely clear to anybody, no, given I'm the fragmentation. Legible, and, yeah. Right, but uh, yeah, pretty infuriating figure that uh, yeah, Chu writes with this kind of uh, exasperated, amusingly exasperated tone. As you get closer and closer to the Chinese border, you talk about this sense
0: that an assertive Russianness was was seeking to mask an inevitable Chinese influence in in much of the Russian Far East. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, wh- how did what form did that assertive Russianness take, and uh, how did you see behind it this anxiety over creeping Chinese influence?
1: Yeah, I think a lot's been made of the fact that there's this huge empty Far Eastern region of Russia, population of six million, maybe a bit more. Uh, of course, I mean that's that's fewer people than big cities in northeastern China, you know, Harbin has more people than that. So there's been a lot of discussion of whether or not China is going to grab that enormous piece of territory, at least to my mind, and I think to those of many, uh, many Russian commentators too, that would be a lunatic idea, why you would want to kind of try to defend that massive region when actually what recent years have shown... Can can be exploited by just signing very preferential uh, deals for oil and so on with the Russian government or the farmland, right? Right. I guess that's one thing, but I mean, Dongbei itself is emptying. I mean, this is, this has known, been known for, a, for a good while, many years, right? It, it, and, and so if the adjacent area of China is decreasing in population, why you would want to add a massive, climatically less favorable region into the picture? It seems, it seems a little mad, but, uh, but There are areas where
0: the border is basically, uh, um, along a north-south line and where climatologically it's identical on one side of the border or the other, but the, Population density on the Chinese side is, is you know, multiples of what it is on the Russian side. The farmland's the same. And, you know, throughout your book, you have people, whether they're talking about fishing or farming, they're constantly sort of carping about the, the lazy Russians on that side. Who you know? If it were us, we'd we'd fish the shit out of that. Mm-hmm. If it mm-hmm. the, were us, we would be cultivating that land, I right? Mean, and so there's kind of a natural osmotic gradient where you would think that a lot of Chinese would want to sort of move, in yeah, this case, west,
1: yeah. And I think I I think one one remarkable thing that anyone can check for themselves is that if you if you go on uh, Google Earth or whatever and remove all layers of, of borders and, and other kinds of markers, you can see where that border is. Partly, I mean. Uh, there are rivers along that border most notably the Amur or the Heilongjiang for for large stretches of it but even without that you can see the way that land use varies uh, just from from space right I mean of course which bits of Chinese borders can be seen from space has been a, a point of discussion for quite a long time. But this this one, you really can see the the distinction there. But to come back to the, the farmland or the kind of notional encroachment, there's been a lot of, yeah, there has been paranoia about that in the Russian Far East, specifically, I, I think, amongst generations of people for whom the presence of China in their lives is a staggeringly new phenomenon. Anyone who grew up during the soviet period when at least f- between the 60s and the and the 80s china and the soviet union were in a, a pretty chilly uh, if not outright hostile uh, yeah, uh, relationship ago, yeah, yeah. right anyone who grew up at that time had nothing at all to do with china despite often growing up within sight of it and so i think the increasing presence of chinese things whether it's material objects consumer goods or people who are coming over as tourists increasingly but uh, also for longer as traders in in the post-soviet era it's a big shock and it has stirred up a lot of a lot of worries about chinese yeah about about exactly these kinds of things that you mentioned that the kind of osmotic potential for what would happen if things were balanced out in terms of population and, and land use but one i mean one indicative fact i think of how perhaps disproportionate some of those fears have been in the region immediately surrounding Vladivostok for example there's far more South Korean business and far more farmland growing soy and other other crops run by and managed by South Korean companies than there is Chinese by quite a long way and no well, one's talking about a kind of well South Korean Korea invasion tico, I mean are there are other kinds of Korean invasion that I think are making themselves felt perhaps culturally in the Russian Far East but uh, uh, not, not, <laughs> and in my household where my well, where is well where, yeah, where, yeah. Where, where, where isn't it being felt oh my god <laughs> K-pop thing. Um,
0: you know, you, your book is also peppered with all sorts of marvelous little observations that you make kind of offhandedly, but, you know, I would love, they turned over in my head and chewed on for a while and thought, oh my God, that's actually, that that's that's very correct. And one of them, I mean, these, this is, is is completely unrelated, but, you know, a lot of the people you talk to are young Chinese travelers, and you just make this sort of offhand remark. On Sub China. recently, we've been talking a lot about whether uh, Chinese people should give themselves English or, or foreign names. Mm. There was a couple of essays that have been written on you know taking one side or the other on that and uh what he pointed out was it, it just became obvious to me after he said it is that the post 80s uh the body hall they all pick you know it's always you know Rebecca or Vivian or whatever or Echo seems to be really popular you know we and then the post 90s they've stopped doing that entirely and then right. they all go go by their chinese names
1: right um, yeah and this was very clear to me I guess from personal experience even apart from that time uh, that specific trip and um, yeah some of these backpackers I'm talking to are young people travelling around parts of inner Mongolia that I cross into where local inhabitants belong to this Olo-sizu, the, the indigenous, ethnic Russian minority of China much mythologized I think rarely actually uh, discussed but, but this, these are these areas which are kind of styled in a Russian way and yeah I, I, this kind of distinction lots of these people are of the, the Zhou ho generation and, and I guess myself being a, a Balinghou my initial experiences in China were often encounters with people of my you know, roughly that age sort of born in the 80s people and so yeah lots of them were called things that vary from viv- the Vivian to to less you know to names that are more surprising perhaps <laughs> um but uh, that I then actually during my um during my later PhD fieldwork, I spent a year or so studying Korean in university in in this Korean autonomous part of northeast China that I also traveled to on this trip and at that point I was joining a first year undergrad class of Chinese Students, uh, all Han Chinese students, studying Korean as a as a major, and they were all Joeling Hall. Given the given the time that I was doing this, and suddenly, yeah, no one was called Simon or but, or uh, you know Amy. It was it was all just yeah, my name's Drew, or you know, kind of uh, these these things. Let's rectify this this um, lack of discussion about the Ilisu Um mm. you're,
0: you're right, we never talk about these people, but um, and they are kind of mythologized. Uh, Tell us about the Ilisu How many of them there are? How they were sort of stranded in China, as it were. And and when they got there,
1: yeah. So they they're pretty intriguing, uh, but I think also a very revealing community. This
0: is Argun, right? Argun is
1: yeah. Argun. So there's this north, basically the northeastern part of uh, of Inner Mongolia. What was this um, Mengjian, uh bit of the Japanese next to Manchukuo? There was this sort of Mongolian bit. So that bit of Inner Mongolia that's basically. Dongbei, um, you know, it's kind of Dongbei's, I guess, the three provinces, uh, Heilongjiang, Liaoning, and, uh, and Jilin plus that bit of Inner Mongolia. So they're in that bit of Inner Mongolia. And they are, their, their sort of Russian-ness is something that I really try to explore in the way that's being marketized these days as a, as a commodity, if you like, for present-day tourists, backpackers, or, or package trips up there but uh, their Ru- their russianness historically is also something that i think um is is a pretty interesting question because they are largely descendants of people um these days several thousand of them i mean they're probably in the bottom bottom 10 or bottom 20 of the 50 of the five minorities yeah. um yeah so they uh, they're not they're not numerous most of them are there, but there's also some in, in Xinjiang who have quite a different history. I mean, we, can, you know, there's, there's there's much to be said, and I do try to say some of the things about the, the absurdities of both the Minzu system in China and, and its counterparts uh, under the Soviet Union and the, the nationalist idea. But in any case, yeah, these people are actually largely descendants of Sino-Russian uh, marriages, or not just Russian, but other other Slavic peoples who moved across the Russian Empire as part of this colonial push. In the aftermath of Nerchinsk, in fact, patrols along the border area, which Russia and China had, or Qing and Romanov, Russia had sort of hazily demarcated, Patrols were not that numerous, and so people were not always that sure where they were, and so there were there were kind of informal gold mining settlements that developed there, and other pastoral communities of of Russians or of you know Russian imperial populations, more more accurately put, because Russian Empire was a vast multi-ethnic uh, state uh, or multi-ethnic body. So lots of Russians were coming across the border there. Basically, the the kind of match up that then uh, transpired between them and and Chinese people really intensified as the Qing came to a sort of crisis point, uh, the late Qing uh, certainly from the sort of 1880s onwards when migration by Han Chinese was was permitted up to the northeast and up to this region including this part of, uh, of, of Inner Mongolia and so that occurred, and so many, many Han Chinese people started to arrive. And then not long after that, the First World War drew a lot of men from this Russian community in this area away to the front and away to Europe, where Russia was fighting until the Bolshevik Revolution in the First World War. And so at that point, there was this gender imbalance, these kind of many Shandong, Hebei, Tuan Guangdong, these migrant Han Chinese, mostly men, prospectors, and, and people just trying to, trying to survive and, and trying to escape really repressive conditions and, and famine and so on, further south in, in northern parts of China proper, mostly men meeting these uh now more numerous Russian women who, who may or may not have been spoken for, uh, may or may not have had know, uh, or, or yeah. We but we but know, in any case, even if they were, enough, right? their men were somewhere in some grisly situation in Europe and so yeah actually this community uh, then kind of developed into a into this kind of Sino-Russian community and actually because of the remoteness of this area I mean even today you can get there now on, on buses and tourists increasingly are but it still takes quite a long time to to make your way up to that sort of part of the country and in the past was yeah it was a very sort of remote region and so the community remained relatively intact in in that the descendants or the the offspring of these mixed marriages then intermarried and so actually this kind of Sino-Russian thing uh, retained its uh, kind of um, balance for for many generations and this so pe- it's kind of exotic uh, you know touristic selling
0: point where people go there and are looking for those sort of i mean there's the, the Russian architecture the carved wooden houses and things like that right now right right, right. This, that's, that's the, yeah, yeah
1: it's been made into a kind of dis- somewhat disney thing yeah. um, but i guess i' try to ask some of these questions i mean of course that looks absolutely appalling to uh to a to anglo american or a sort of euro american audience that, that use of ethnicity in that way or the marketing of of ethnic identity but you know speaking to many people there I think uh, you witness some things that I think other anthropologists for example have witnessed in Yunnan or other regions of China where actually taking the Minzu identity that the state has given you and then selling it back to the state or selling it back to the at least the majority population of that state, the Han tourists who it's come kind of there. Empowering. It's, yeah, it's a sort of, uh, it's a sort of resistance, uh, technique that, that actually allows you to do pretty well for yourself. And, you know, you still know who you are. And, and, you know, it's not, it's not too, and, and, and compared to the past when, uh, at least during that Sino-Soviet split era that I r- referenced earlier, Russian identity in, in the Chinese borderlands was extremely stigmatized and problematic. I mean, actually, it's, it's not a bad deal to be, you know, charging like, uh, 100, 150 yen for a homestay in a pseudo-Russian wooden-clad house, which is these days the, the kind of the norm.
0: Well, maybe they should create an ethnic park for certain ethnic
1: groups. Yeah, good idea, right, there, there, no, yeah. there was
0: this, uh, another ethnic group that you looked at. I mean, look, the, the borders, as you say, uh, sometimes, are uh, were ambiguous then, or crossed a lot. I mean, even the two more obvious borders of the Amur and the, and the Usuri rivers, uh, there are populations that live astride them Mm. and they were sort of cleaved and it's interesting to see how they developed separately so one of them is the Haja people Mm. who on the Russian side are called the Nanai that's right yeah
1: Um, yeah um, yeah so they, these people and many other groups who've been yeah kind of uh, cleft asunder uh, as you mentioned. The, um, the fisher people I mean, these are the guys with the fish skin outfits right right, really right. historically, historically stuff, I yeah. mean they they and many other groups related to them these are um, many of them Tungusic peoples speaking languages and, and, and being related to the Manchus themselves right. I guess and and at least those closer to Turchi, Manchu right. power right. right sort of descendants of some of these northern people uh, who, who lived there in, in times past they Living closer to Chinese power, historically incorporated into Manchu banner regiments and so on, with varying degrees of incorporation into the Manchu, uh, into the Qing state structure. But the border that was later. I mean, basically, looking at two kind of border periods in this region, that the, the 1689 Yerchinsk era, and then 150 years later, perhaps, perhaps even better known and more immediately railed against by online Chinese nationalists. The, 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 the 18, yeah, the well, the uh, little early 1858 and 1860, uh, right, 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 right. The, the treaties of uh, Aigun and uh, Beijing, um, which was signed, uh, which were sealed in those locations. And, and basically incorporated the territories around Khabarovsk, big main city in the Russian Far East these days, and Vladivostok, uh, the kind of bit that sort of goes south from there. Uh, and I include maps of all this stuff in the book, I should say. But yeah, so so this did divide groups who had had a varying level of allegiance in in past times to the Qing state. And then those two groups were gradually estranged from one another during the sort of era of high socialism uh, somewhat earlier in the Soviet Union, of course, from the 30s in particular, when, when sort of Stalinist policies of um, ethnic uh, kind of incorporation into the Soviet state were, were in full force. And then, you know, a couple of decades later under Mao, they really became, you know, very much a part of the the, the ethnic regimes and and indeed the uh, sort of national culture of, of right. these two respective socialist behemoths, if you like, Soviet Union and China. And so that was something that, yeah, divided them to a certain extent for as long as China and the Soviet Union were officially mates during the 50s and early 60s. But then once things got really bad, they had absolutely no contact whatsoever. Um, and so for the last many decades, they haven't been able to sort of meet or, or have anything to do with each other uh, until until the 90s, when some sort of reconnection became possible. Um, but by which point, actually... They had diverged. Yeah, many decades absolutely. of... of just the 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 realities of life in in these two different places meant that not only were they speaking different languages but uh Everything about their kind of everyday lives is very uh, visibly distinct. I mean, fishing. What
0: they remembered about their their ethnic identity seems to have like starkly diverged.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, uh, of course, the difference between the Hoja in, in in China who have this history, uh, however constructed and and however spurious in many in many instances, as so many of these sort of Minzu histories of national loyalty are. Uh, but they have a certain there's a plausible history there to be written about their connection to a, a Chinese polity for quite a long time the Russian community of course there are fewer claims there to be made about their eternal ties to, to Russian Tsardom and, and everything that preceded the present and so actually some of the um, I, I guess more fiery activists the character Leonid Right. Yeah. He's, 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 he's just kind of Leonine also. I yeah. Mean, yeah he, he has, he has this, uh, yeah, the kind of very, um, uh, firebrand sort of, um, activist, uh, activist character. He's still, a, still a good friend of mine. He and, and others in his sort of, uh, activist community among the Nanai, they talk a lot about having been the Jurchins and having been the Manchus and, and having lorded it over China and how now they're in this really they're a terrible position in in post-socialist, post-Soviet Russia, where their villages are really decrepit. They, they were propped up for quite a long time by Soviet redistributive logics, which then collapsed in the aftermath of the Soviet collapse. And, uh yeah, also the way the sort of traditional, quote-unquote, Lifestyles that they've engaged in have transformed over time also is a mark of that. I mean, socialist policies in both China and, and in Russia move from their kind of ad hoc, semi-nomadic fishing and, and hunting lifestyles to being dragooned into these fishing brigades, right. these, these formally organized Sort of ethnic fishing teams, uh, almost a militarization of the of the of the fishing fleet along the river, um, which uh, had a sort of uh, militaristically devastating impact on fish stocks, uh, which then meant that this they is, were this driven to all could be a chapter in James Scott's Seeing Like a State. I mean, right. Exactly, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's a, and,
0: and and but, uh, but the uh, fact that they've uh, endured those things effort to impose legibility on this precisely. local situation. Precisely. Well, t- tell me a little more about this. I landed. I mean, there's this one scene in your book where he shows up to meet you. In a, in a square, he's wearing this really ostentatious blue silk embroidered
1: robe. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah. He has and this, this, a this plan. And a, That's a right. Robe. So, so I mean, the, the kind of again, uh, respective. Uh, ethnic policies both sides of the border have ascribed to their ethnic ethnic minorities a kind of archetypal array of uh clothing of of dances of songs of you know the kind of um paraphernalia (laughs) that one witnesses on on the chunwan on on the cctv new year's gala or whatever very similar uh, phenomena existed in in the soviet periods less so now but in any case there is this kind of uh, canonized uh sort of repertoire of, of of costume and so on and so um Again, I mean, these, these, these things are used these days as a way of talking to the state, right? I mean, you wear your costume and then you become Nanai in a way that otherwise it's very difficult these days to prove yourself right. Nanai. Russia, incidentally, Russia no longer has the ethnicity caric, uh, category on its, uh, domestic identification oh, documents. No, that's, that's they, they got rid of that in 2007. So there's no, not like on the Chinese Xianfan there's no, there's no way of saying, here's my national ID. Here I am demonstrably a Nanai or Evenk or Sacha or, 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 or any other minority group. And so, yeah, he wears this uh, very lavish, uh, embroidered robe, which um, has this Chinese, the traditional Fan character long, the dragon, <laughs> dragon character, uh, all peppered all over it. But you know he sort of sheepishly says, "Well look you know actually this one divides down the middle meets you know across my uh, across my chest here, but actually the real Nanai one is one of those ones more close to the Mongolian um, the side right? Uh, yeah up up in the shoulder kind of up at the neck um, and so um, yeah he's kind of you know dancing around some of these uh, these historical I guess ethnic identifications and but channeling all of that into claims to be made against the Russian state and and, and you know basically wanting to uh, you know use that as a lever against these and you were telling me when we were chatting
0: the other day about how he's really really sort of fascinated with indigeneity everywhere now, I mean, globally. Right. Which is a really interesting side effect of his
1: own kind of ethnic awakening. Yeah, yeah and I think it's also a really interesting side effect of the relative, uh, what kind of, I guess, discussions or what kind of information networks um, former Soviet peoples and, and contemporary Chinese uh, peoples are plugged into because actually... Uh, Among many, many uh, indigenous groups of the Russian Far East and the Far North and Siberia, the post-Soviet period has been one where interest in global indigeneity in, uh, you know, whether it's Native American populations or Maori or or any other, indeed, global indigenous um, cause, it's been a huge uh, sort of boom, most notably things like meetings across the Bering Strait between but. communities, you know, riven by another, uh, national border between, uh, what was Russian Alaska and, 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 uh, now United States since the 18, uh, since the 1840s, the United States and, and, and Chuhotka, you know, there's been a lot of this kind of inter-indigenous group communication and, and, and networking. Whereas in China, very much still, uh, at least from the Huijia uh, and and other groups, including the Olosudzu and other minority groups that I spoke to, like they're cloven uh, off. Yeah, yeah they're, well, they're part of a Chinese world, which right. is not so uh, much part of those same discussions. Um, so again, that's another, I guess, indication of that that divide. So let's let's move you along. Uh, you spent some time in Harbin, and
0: uh, you talked mainly about that city's history from you know growing from a rail juncture, just to revolve, something laid down by the Russians, to the city of six or seven million people that it is today. Mm. Uh, you talk quite a bit, though, in your history about the white Russian settlement there after the Russian Civil War and the, the large community of, of diaspora Jews that was there as well. A really interesting city. I, I, I wish there would be more written about. I mean, Shanghai is, gets all the attention mm, and mm. what was happening with, uh, Karbinsky's was more maybe
1: as interesting, right? Right. No, that's right. Yeah. Um, no, it's a pretty unique, uh, yeah, little, uh, little, uh, I guess yeah, an island uh, of, of of Russianness. Um, I mean, um, it, it started yeah, of pretty pretty humble uh, origins as this uh, this rail junction and the point where um, the Russian built China Eastern Railway that uh, basically was actually the first link in the right. Trans Siberian between uh, the the sort of European and Siberian stretch of the railway to the, the to Vladivostok the stock, yeah. um, because the route across that part of what was uh, uh, of course by the early 20th century an increasingly sort of detached fragmenting part of the collapsing Qing was the much more uh, much shorter more viable route and so so uh, much contested, much fought over, changed hands many a time. The right. Japanese, yeah. Know. No, that's right. So, so in a sense, been acts as a pretty good lens into the really in, uh, um, incredible transformations and, and inter-imperial rivalries that were going on from that point in the, in the very end of the 19th century up to the, well, really up to the establishment of the People's Republic, whether it's the, whether it's Japanese interest or uh, Russian interest or then the kind of many, many Russian interests that that fractured uh, or that, that emerged in the aftermath of the Civil War when Harbin became this kind of island of pre-revolutionary Russian life okay. in China, uh, detached from what was now the Soviet Union, not too far to the, up the railway to the north. And yeah, sort of persisted in some version of that. But then, of course, under Japanese occupation in the Manchukuo period, and again, in the present, somewhere I'd, yeah, really heartily recommend a visit at any time of year. Ice Festival is very well known. Of course. Uh, blisteringly cold. Uh, definitely take a, take a hat. But it's a, uh, yeah, amazing city. And actually the amount of sort of urban fabric that is there from, very all many, sort of, yeah. many layers of it. Many layers yeah. of it. From the authentic kind of all, as authentic as you're going to get, genuine uh, remnants of of that early period to interesting reconstructions of merchants' houses built by Chinese merchants in the city at this period in a kind of European style. Many of which lacked plumbing and lack, you know, kind of were, <laughs> were not were not in any way uh, anything Functional, more right, than right, these kind of right, facades right. Of, of of conformity with this uh, you know this sort of quote unquote European city and this this sort of dialogue between. Europe and Asia that I think is present in a huge amount of Russia and China's interactions over time is something I try and dig into, and I think Harbin provides a, a pretty interesting lens onto that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the city of Hunchuan uh, and its environs. This is where you did your dissertation research. Uh it's, it's near this so-called, uh, triple border. Well, mm. I mean, it's not just so-called, it is the triple border. Of China, <laughs> right. Russia, and, and, North Korea. Uh, that alone makes the town really fascinating, but there are all sorts of plans now being laid for the town. It has, you know, an important role to play. Yeah, talk a little bit about Hunshun and its significance.
1: Yeah. So I, so Hunshun and, and this wider, uh, kind of Yenbian prefecture, it's called Yenbian Korean Autonomous Prefecture. Um, A pretty uh, unique and, 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 and to me at the very least, fascinating part of what is overall, I think, quite a fascinating region. It, I think, exemplifies a lot of what you see today in terms of a really vast imbalance between Far Eastern Russian communities, which are very, uh, still very dilapidated. You know, almost three decades on from from the demise of the Soviet Union, still very obvious scars of that sort of imperial collapse. massively depleted populations, the physical ruins of of the demise of many of these towns are just standing there uh, around. And so from Hunchun, which itself is this place that from the center, from both Yambian, but also more importantly, from Beijing has been envisioned as a northeast Asian hub, both logistics and and, and transport and kind of basically an outpost of the Chinese developmentalist dream is, I guess, a particularly clear sign there of the, of the mismatch between what is going on on the Chinese side of the Sino-Russian border uh, and on the Russian side. I mean, incidentally, there you also have North Korea, which provides a, a third very intriguing case study of, of what has happened to a socialist country, which was going along some kind of developmental trajectory for a while in the late 20th century of course, to uh, uh, more catastrophic consequences, even (laughs) perhaps than the Soviet collapse. But yeah, I think it provides this sort of outpost of that still uh, unquenchable Chinese optimism for all of these sort of totemic ideas of progress and development and even civilization and modernity and all of these things which... Are not only problematic to, or at least need to be interrogated by uh, anyone trying to understand these from a from a sort of analytical academic point of view, but also in, in former Soviet communities. Where people have been suffused by that language for the latter part of the 20th century, Soviet Union also expressed its sort of state projects in the language of uh, forward movement and this kind of Marxian understanding of, of, of a, a kind of teleological trajectory through time. But of course, since the its ability to deliver doesn't really quite match what is. <laughs> no, and, and 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 as I say, there are the the physical ruins that surround people immediately across the border from Hunshun of the well of the ambivalence of these kinds of or the the, the potential failures of these progressivist project. It's, stark, it's right? a very stark contrast. And what at least I found one of the more, uh, kind of in, in, interesting aspects of my PhD research was, yeah, the way that Russians then perceive the Chinese impetus on the other side of the border. I mean, they can see, like, from, uh, the a, a neighboring border towns on the Russian side, you can see Hun Chun glowing at night, uh, on the underside of clouds. You know, on a cloudy night, you can do this, this kind of spectral glow of this, like, bustling Hunchun, which, uh, you know, mixes its kind of Chinese and, and, and kind of, uh, I guess, center-infused development with a lot of Korean influence too, because the population of Yeonpyeong, this Korean autonomous area, is still roughly forty to fifty percent ethnic Korean. The Shenzhou, another Chinese minority, but this one with, you know, country two countries to choose from. Uh, uh, what does this do in the, in the Russian psyche uh, for people who are there, looking at the the glow of the city
0: on the other side? Is it just? Uh, resentment or or is it
1: inspiring to some people is it yeah i think it really varies it's often a generational thing so there are certainly those among <coughs> the older generation who as i say uh alluded to earlier grew up under a, uh a, in a in soviet circumstances which meant that they uh came to see china as something of a uh well they didn't they didn't have much understanding of china or, or any contact with it and so right. um the fact that these people who and 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 This is an undeniable fact that I, that I try and bring out. uh sort of quote-unquote Asian people in Russia, including Asian minority groups within Russia or ethnically non-Slavic peoples within Russia, have, have been discriminated against and condescended to for, for a very long time. And China as this kind of, you know, notionally like chaotic Asian place in comparison to civilized sort of European Russia or Soviet Union, I think for people who see that, again, it plays into what we discussed earlier about the sort of the Chinese, the potential threat there. But younger people who cross Cross over the border. Who who jump over and find something to do? Study Chinese in some local center. You know whether that's Yenji, the main city in Lungbian, uh, the bigger the kind of uh, prefectural center, mm. or, or home of Lungbian. Yeah, right. Home. Well, home of the the, the Chinese version of Lungbian. Right, I right. guess uh, Hamhung and uh, Pyongyang in North Korea are the two Korea. the two centers, uh, Nengbian, Rengmian in North Korean. Um, but yeah, the, the the people who hop over there, uh, the Russians. They they see these vast vistas opening out before them in terms of possibilities right. associated with this uh, booming China and 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 so they they really kind of uh, embrace that and I think um, there's even interesting versions of sort of nostalgia about China being still officially communist being a kind of echo of what the Soviet Union didn't manage to achieve. Look, these Chinese people they've they've sorted it out you know they've they've figured out how to reform they've made the system work in ways that we were never able to and, and oddly enough yeah that kind of same Soviet thinking about progress has just been kind of transplanted in, in the minds of some Russians who are now involved in whatever facet of, of Chinese development that, that, that they find their place in. And finally it was on
0: to Beijing. Right. Uh, and, uh, the last stop on your, on your, on your journey up. One, th- I lived there for a very long time, as I think many of our listeners know, and uh, I lived often in the, in the very near vicinity of Russian communities, um, uh, whether the, the one near the, the Russian embassy in Dongzhoumen, or, um, more often I lived sort of near Yabalu, hmm. which is sort of near Zhitan Park, uh, north side of Zhitan Park, uh, south of Changmen. And in that, na- that neighborhood is fascinating for me. I mean, it's, we, one hears all these lurid stories about how you can buy handguns from the Russians <laughs> and you can do this. Uh, uh, to, how did this, this Russian ghetto get established? And, and can we call it a ghetto? I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, it's always just been a, a subject of fascination for me. And I'd love to see something good written a, more, more about that. But tell us what you observed in, in these Russian neighborhoods.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think both in Beijing and, and in, also in Changchun, where I, where I was immediately preceding Beijing, uh, I wanted to trace some of the, the physical, uh, remnants of, of, I guess, historical influence, um, on, on these cities. And so Changchun, having been the Japanese Manchukuo capital and also a Russian, an important Russian rail junction was something I tried to understand by looking at street plans and, and buildings and so on. And so I think trying to read Beijing also through a similar lens, looking at this, I guess, Yuan dynasty, city plan, the kind of Kublai Khan era um, layout of the city, which, you know, obviously persists to this day. I think even relatively brief visits to the capital will, you know, familiarize people with the idea that there's this axis and, and you don't have to go too deeply into what's going on to look at that the, the, there's uh, the, the Sun and the moon and there's uh, heaven and earth counterposed across the uh, at the four points of the compass um, and so, but but what I, I'm interested in is the way that there's a kind of heavily Soviet influenced overlay on that stuff right um, and so some of that is a recent socialist era Soviet influence but equally the much longer-standing Russian contact is also still evident. So that Dongjimen embassy area that you mention, in fact, that's a corner of the old Tartar city, as it yeah. used to be called in European languages, but the Manchu uh, inner inner city, uh, where the you know, kind of exclusive realm for the Qing uh, banner soldiers and and the like, but, but this concession area in the far northeast was given over, not a concession in the same way that, I guess, extraterritorial concessions were made in the imperial period of, of European colonization, but this, this Russian district was created by, in fact, originally populated by, uh, people brought back from that Albazin fortress that oh. the Qing had squished, uh, in the late 17th century. Jesus, yeah. So a bunch of these, um, uh, Cossacks and other people fighting for the Russian side, who, as we already mentioned, a somewhat kind of ragtag band of semi-loyal, uh, mostly out-for-themselves type individuals. And some not, of them decided, I'm going to throw my lot in with these mansions yeah, now. Yeah, I right? mean, the Ching win, and they just kind of look, look like a better bet. Um, and so, yeah, sort of uh, not, not a huge amount, uh, not a huge number, again, because none of the numbers involved in these early days were that big. But uh, a certain community moved back to uh, Beijing followed followed the Qing forces back to their capital and were given this kind of corner of the uh, of the inner city in exactly the same place where the Russian embassy now is that that vast compound next to Dongziman. Um So they have been there continuously All Russians and, and, and their associated people. have, so all the way through these these very violent and radical transitions from uh, Russian Empire. And, and when did Yabalu get started? When did that become so russified? Yeah. So that's a much more post-Soviet uh, phenomenon. I try and find a way into that. Um, another thing I try and build a bit into the book is uh, some, some of the sort of uh, more contemporary cultural output of I think, musicians and, and I guess uh, rock and rap artists that I've been into uh, over the last years of, of living in these two places. And so there's a Chinese um, underground or sort of relatively uh, Beijing artist, Joel, he goes by... Mr. Joe, he, he kind of goes by, uh, who wrote this song called Yabalu, which basically reflects on that, um, post-Soviet emergence of Russians and, 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 and former Soviet peoples in that area. And so this kind of, um, Emerged in, uh, yeah, in, in, in the nineties and was, you know, is, is a home, of course, to Russians as, as I guess is more generally known, but actually it's a real cosmopolitan space where you're as likely to meet Kazakhs and Uzbeks and, and Chechens as you are, you know, actual at sort of Russian yeah, Russians. Russian people in the Caucasus. Right. And, yeah. and this song, yeah, Joel Fengling is the name of the, of the artist. He sort of, uh, muses in this kind of drolling, uh, drawling way about, um, about Yabalu becoming this new, uh, sort of place where Geiger Kaifeng dynamics were at play and and these Russians were appearing. And I guess, uh, yeah, I'm interested uh, in that region or that that little... Corner of Beijing on the eastern side there, right, just east of Chaoyangmen. In relation to how Russians and, and Russian arrivals there in the 90s sort of presaged the onset of this new era, um, in a, in the a similar way to how the arrival of Soviet experts in Beijing in the 50s, as architectural consultants, as town planners, as industrial consultants, as political technologists, as every possible kind of model from from Soviet system to be transplanted into China their arrival in beijing in the 50s was similarly the sort of dawn of a new period for for china and so actually i think uh, you can see that in beijing's both its population and 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 some of the actual physical uh, infrastructure of the city you can see how russians have in a way been the, the 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 less heralded northern people that have descended to the capital to beijing which of course has been Fulcrum for Yuan power over China Subsequently uh, Qing That these kind of, that, you know, whether it's the Mongols Or the Manchus who've come down from the north Actually the Russians and the Soviets have been This other northern group who've come down And left a pretty deep impression on Contemporary China They've left uh,
0: also a street full of really interesting Restaurants, which is right north of Rutan Park, uh, right Sort of parallel to Rutan Beilu mm. uh, or, uh, per- West, west the- of, yeah, west yeah. of Rutan Park yeah. yeah, west of Rutan Park, uh, which is well, lots of fun. Um, there's like, Azerbaijani restaurants, and uh, there was a Georgian place. I don't know if it's still open. There's a, a Czech beer pl- beer pub, hmm. um, a couple of Xinjiang places, but uh, there and then there's this Russian
1: grocery store there. Right, where, you know, right, right. Pretty spectacular. Good sausage and yeah no it's definitely like actually yeah that road you're talking gone. about I think is just to the north yeah, yeah Yabalu yeah. itself is to the west but then yeah, yeah right, this right. kind of spills out right, spills into out over other there. adjacent yeah. areas Um yeah so there's, yeah there's definitely a, there's a Russian side to Beijing that uh, yeah I think we'll it's count cool. that as a preliminary recommendation but uh let's
0: I mean we, let's first of all Ed thank you so much for joining uh, no it's been a pleasure it, uh, yeah that's really fun to talk about and I highly recommend the book it's out 8 May yeah end of 20, May in the UK May. and then June in, in the US okay so, great it's called Mirror Lands again make sure to check it out Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to remind our listeners that The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you enjoy the reporting, the columns, the quizzes, the podcast conversations, and all the rest of it, uh, the best thing you can do is just to subscribe to SubChina Access for just a few bucks a month. You can really keep up on all that's happening in China, enjoy discounts and free admission to our events, and chat
1: with our editorial team on our Slack channel. So uh, tell a friend. On to recommendations. Ed, what do you have for us? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of uh, sort of Sino-Russian stuff can be found uh, in, in in the book itself. It's it's not uh, effusively footnoted, but there are a few references to interesting things. So I so I'd suggest uh, you know getting that where uh, good books are sold, and then looking in there for ancillary recommendations to this topic. But I guess I'm interested in the more general theme of uh, Northeast Asian or East Asian connectivity. too, and, and having spent a bit of time in in Korea and Japan as well in more recent years, a couple of recommendations perhaps relating to that. This is not by any means a new find or anything that probably will be news to many people and it may well have been recommended before but uh, I've just finished reading Pachinko uh, by Min Jin Lee uh, which is, uh, she, she's a, a Korean-American, Korean-American writer right, right. Uh, who talks a lot in, in, well, writes a lot of, uh, in, in her in her novels about uh, diasporic Korean experience and this one is um, based in, in Japan um, and it's just an absolute, uh, you know, deeply moving, incredibly vivid uh, account of, of Korean experience uh, in Japan. And then the second one, coming more from uh, closer to where I'm based at the moment, there's a novelist, uh, early 20th century novelist, I guess, in some ways a contemporary and someone swept up on the left, same leftist wave as the likes of Chucho Bai, a Japanese writer called uh, Kobayashi Takiji, who wrote a number of kind of leftist-infused, uh, in, in sort of uh, uh, minded novels in, in, in the 1920s and, and uh, around then, including one which is called The, uh, the Crab Cannery Ship, uh, which discusses uh, sort of proletarian experience experience of hard-pressed Japanese crab canners around Hokkaido. So, so as I mentioned, it this is why it's linked to what I'm up to now. Um, and they have some interesting run-ins with Far Eastern Soviet people who, who infuse them with uh, revolutionary consciousness and so on. And, um, there's been a recent translation and, and, and kind of collection of, of, of his work, including that novel, uh, out with Hawaii Press, um, Hawaii University Press. Um, so I'd really recommend checking that out for another kind of dimension of this uh, Russia- Northeast Asia connectivity that uh, I think is not necessarily a story that is always that widely uh, told that sounds great uh, will be very. I mean I have not actually read Pachinko
0: I also well, I'll read that. it yeah I will absolutely yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna recommend something very silly which is this 1982 TV movie adaptation of Sir Walter Scott's classic Ivanhoe uh, and i, I my brother and I were chatting on the phone and we were sort of reminiscing about that that uh, I watched it a ton when I was a child we had it on VHS uh, it stars Sam Neill, uh, Olivia Hussey, who was Juliet in the, uh, you know, version of Romeo and Juliet, John Rhys Davies, was Gimli in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, a, right. A Peter Jackson one. I
1: think many of these things are, uh, to a barling hold. they slightly obscure, uh, yeah, obscure yeah. figures maybe. <laughs> I, I posted, uh, about this on Twitter and immediately
0: a bunch of Swedes told me that apparently this film has, uh, achieved kind of weird iconic, slightly ironic iconic status where, uh, the there's a, a national tradition whereby the day after new year's they all eat pizza while badly hungover and watch this 1982 adaption adaptation of Ivanhoe. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a lot of good kind of un, I mean earnest, but maybe unintentionally campy fun. Uh, I do recommend it though. It's a good time. I mean, with or without the pizza or the hangover or the, the, the new year arrival, uh, Anyway, thanks. What a pleasure. It's been uh, it's been great talking to you about this book. Well, likewise, Kaiser. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. All right, the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina dot com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at Sub-China News, and make sure to check out all our other podcasts: the like Sichuan Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Top Ta for Top, and the brand new Middle Earth podcast on the Culture Industry channel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, Cynica listeners. We're really excited about the brand new show. We've got Strangers in China, which debuts next week on the Cynica Network. We're going to be running chapter one of the first season right here on Seneca next week. And, of course, we encourage you to subscribe. Uh, let me introduce you to the show's creator, Clay Baldo. Clay, man, welcome to the network. Uh, hey, how are you
2: doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm I'm, I'm excellent. I'm, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm usually on the other side of the interview, so... This is right, this is my first right. time being interviewed ever actually. So right, we're so. going
0: to keep you there on the other side for, I mean, you do a really good job on the other side. So uh, nobody wants to hear my answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they do want to hear your questions. So uh, tell tell us That's a little right. bit about yourself. Where where did you grow up? Uh what got you interested in China? How how did you end up there and uh that sort of thing.
2: Um well, I I'm from Connecticut originally, which is completely insignificant to the story. I would just say that um I was born to An immigrant parent, my dad's from Italy. And uh, I just get, I guess that general sense of just moving to somewhere new is very, like, feels very real and deep within me. Yeah. So I guess, like, I had an impetus to go somewhere new. It wasn't until college when I started taking Chinese that I was like, oh, okay, let's try it. (laughs) Let's try China. If you had told me 10 years ago that um, I had, I would have been in China for six years of the past 10 years. I I wouldn't have believed you. So it was very much, I don't know, it was a series of coincidences that kind of came together. And um, I ended up studying abroad in Beijing. And then I've basically been here ever since, except for the year that I graduated. So, yeah. Cool, 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 cool. So um the
0: name the the name of the podcast, Strangers in China, I, I love it. I thought we all thought on the team here, we thought it was a perfect name for a show about, you know, people like you me, like people on the margins, you know. It's done really by people themselves who are foreigners or strangers uh, to the country. Your dad's Italian, so you probably know that, you know, like strangers and foreigners is one word in a lot of the Latin languages. but uh, After uh, 20 years there, I often actually still felt like a stranger. So uh, tell us a little bit about the name and and how you guys came up with it.
2: Um, I would say just it was just sort of kismet. I mean, we kind of were looking for names, and strangers in China just sounded so good and intriguing. But I think the reason that it sounds so good and intriguing was because as, right. As you said, that's a, that's a really good point. Like, we feel like outsiders, me and Sheree as co-hosts uh, living here in China for, for two different reasons. You know, She's, she's Chinese American and, and I'm just like white American and we both feel like strangers in different ways. But we're always trying to talk to people who feel estranged from their own country in a certain way, uh, from their right. own society in a certain way. And so that's really why it felt like it was such a good fit. When, when it really came down to it. We're looking for people who see China in a different way. And uh, from my experience, people who see things in a different way are usually different in some particular way. So a lot of the sure. voices that we feature are people who just couldn't make it within the system or people who want to defy the system in some way or people who live on the margin of society. I want to temper people's expectations a little bit because it's we're not talking about we're not talking to like p- political leaders necessarily or people who are starting big movements necessarily we're talking to normal people uh-huh. who have decided within their personal life that like I just can't live like this anymore or whatever this is and and we want to show sort of why their some simple acts of rebellion or some of some of them have quite grand acts of rebellion why those are so interesting and why they're so worth looking at. So that's sort of our idea. It's intriguing. Uh, people do cover characters who are outside
0: of the mainstream, but typically because they are political or religious rebels or something like that. And, and you're talking more about little everyday acts of transgression or you know feelings of alienation. And yeah, you know, I think everyone who's been who's lived in China knows there's there's a lot of that. And uh, that gives the place a lot of its character. You've you've been interviewing some really quirky characters for this show. Uh, Has there been anything that stood out, you know, that was particularly interesting or or weird that's happened along the way that you might be able to share with our audience with the the reminder that this is a family show?
2: (laughs) (laughs) My favorite episode was going to Cinema Q, which is a queer event Uh here in uh, Shanghai. And... Just I, I did a lot of like like vox pop, you know, like talking to people, just random people. Uh-huh. Um, who, who went to the event. And the reason I loved working at Cinema Q was like the vibe, the feeling is so so exciting. It feels almost like combustible mm. in a weird way. It's like you have all these people who are nervous about being where they are, like nervous about talking, nervous about showing up to watch these movies that are sort of like not sponsored by the you know state narrative so you're watching all these queer movies these explicit movies these really intriguing movies and so the audience is like so so excited because they're feeling represented and they like are so excited to share with each other and talk to each other and they were like very open to, to talking with us so i don't know something about that environment was just felt so like real and exciting and i I think it really comes across in the episode so i think the listeners will really get like a chance to immerse themselves in parts of shanghai that maybe they don't know about so i'm excited about that going
0: to a queer film festival that is a target rich environment for
2: a guy doing a a show like yours
0: that's great man it's just a pity that you had this great co-host sheree uh you guys launched the show together uh, I know that you had the you know the 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 idea for the show. You had done a lot of the, the production work already for a couple of pilot type episodes, but Cherie uh, had to head back to the states, I guess, to take a job. But uh, you've got some some other great co-hosts who are going to be joining you for for other chapters in this season. Yeah,
2: I do, I do. So let me let me just say a couple words about Cherie. Yeah. Um, of my little love letter to Cherie, because honestly, if it weren't for her, like this this project would have never gotten off the ground. I had so much like raw idea and I had so much like will to go, but without her like sense of organization telling us to slow down, without the name, she came up with the name, like uh, all of like sort of the design sort of ethos aspects of it, as well as like bringing in a lot of interesting people to talk to, like this would have never gone anywhere. So I am eternally grateful to Sheree. For helping me get this thing going all right and um and and not just help sorry that sounds like she she was she was my partner i mean that's been like the real upsetting part for me is like we were like partners and we fought and we like that was the best thing is that she her and i had like a, a very oppositional relationship in a lot of ways so we had like good arguments and i think that shows up in the podcast and we like were close and we were friends and then we were also like Enemies and we and we you know would fight and so I don't know finding that dynamic is definitely going to be hard again
0: That relationship you described that reminds me of another couple of podcast hosts. I'm familiar with.
2: Oh, yeah, me too Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) it works. It works really well that kind of oppositional thing,
2: but you're also really close friends I think that I found a couple people who have um, interest interesting personal perspectives that uh, will show through, and I'm excited about. Um, I have my friend Yuki. She is a she's a life coach here in Shanghai, oh, and wow. she came in and talked to me about like sexuality in China. She's like she was very open to talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I have a friend Maggie who's going to come help me, who is like an analyst for social media and stuff. So she's very savvy. But you know, I haven't found that like specific. Cherie energy that i love yeah so i I hope the show doesn't suffer yeah
0: you know as much as i loved Cherie being part of the show i'm sure you're going to continue to do some really really great shows and uh, i really look forward to hearing the rest of this season uh before we go where can people find you on social media
2: okay uh our instagram is at strangers in china Mm -hmm. our twitter is at stranger in china there's no strangers it's just one stranger i couldn't get strangers in china for some reason (laughs) which is yeah which is so totally weird and we've foregone doing the whole facebook thing because you know who's on facebook anymore i am (laughs) hey but whatever (laughs) my bad sorry
0: sorry kaiser (laughs) that's okay you are forgiven hey clay baldo congrats on the new show we're really psyched about it thanks thanks Don't forget,
2: it launches on the 19th. That's next week, so uh, so stay tuned. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, well, thanks, Kaiser. Thanks for the interview. This is the first time I've been interviewed, so I was a little bit nervous. But, um, yeah. You did fine. You did fine.